0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Chamber Chatter, the podcast series from Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce, in which we'll take a deeper look at some of the key business matters of the day, as well as some of the issues currently affecting businesses. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at a massive issue that sooner or later, in one way or another, affects or has an impact on all businesses. We're going to be looking at management and leadership... And why it's becoming increasingly important right across the world of business. It's such a huge issue, we're actually going to split this particular episode into two parts. So to help tackle this, I'm joined by a couple of guests who are not just experts on this subject, but they've written books, they've taught management, they've held senior positions in recruitment firms, and probably forgotten more about this subject than most people will ever know. I'm pleased to welcome the Chamber's Chief Executive, Clive Mehmet OBE, and Graeme Wiley, Chair of Sage Green Consulting. Gentlemen, welcome uh, to uh, to the Chamber Chatter podcast. Hey, Chris. Um, I've called this sort of management or leadership in the title. Um, and I just want to open up, really, with that question, because you know as well as I do, and we see it all the time, those two phrases just get interchanged, used in one way or another. Is there a difference? And if there is, what do you think that is? Client. Technically, there's a
1: definition of difference, Chris. Or oh, Graham. <laughs> um, yeah, ma- Management is defined <laughs> by the organisation of resources to produce outputs. So like people, time, machines, whatever. And the better at producing those outputs from the fewer amount of resources you put in, typically you'd be judged a more efficient manager. And the ability to manage comes exclusively from authority. You're the boss. And so it's your responsibility to get stuff done. Leadership is something completely different. Leadership is the ability to create a vision that people buy into. A purpose, a goal, an objective, a direction of travel, a north star, call it what you will, but something that people willingly want to follow you behind. And the point about that, there's no authority involved in that. It's entirely your ability to persuade. And in small businesses, in my experience, is, it's very difficult not to be responsible as the owner or the chief executive for both aspects. You've got to be a really good manager. You've got to know how to get the best out of people. And at the same time, it's got to be in the context of knowing where you're all going and then wanting to follow you. So technically, they are two different things. I'm really pleased you started with that, Chris, because you're right. The interchanging does tend to mean people get confused about the fact that it is fundamentally different.
0: Okay, thanks, Graham. Clive, have you got anything to add to that? Hmm, yeah, I think I have. I'll, I'll draw an analogy with our approach to
2: um, economic success in this country. Because if you take Graham's excellent definition of management, you know, which is effectively about getting efficiency and increased efficiency out of resources, well, you know, that's not how we've driven our labour market and our economy in this country. Over the last very many years, where of course a rich supply of labour has meant that we became lazy in terms of our productivity. And we can see the results of it now as there's an acute labour shortage in some parts of the market. So I couldn't miss that as an opportunity to, to throw that in. And we'll get, I know we'll go back to the labour market. I mean, Graham's Graham's right, and uh, but the two things, of course, interlink all the time. And the problem is too many people then get themselves hung up about Know, I'm a managing, I'm a leading all the time, and you've got to know what the difference is. And this is Graham says, you know, leadership is about words like influence, motivation, empower, enable you know, it makes sure those people have the ability to succeed in whatever organization it is. As a person, that planning power and control of management that's that is important. It's a great simplification of that, and again, you know, this this stuff gets knocked around in an outrageous ways. You know, leaders inspi- inspire and praise, managers find fault. It's not quite like that, is it? You know, uh, leaders make change happen, and managers react to change. Well, it doesn't always work like that, but there are important things to bear in mind. And you know, leaders uh, we make heroes, the managers all try to be heroes, and you get these incredible simplifications what this thing is but what I would say the most importantly in my opinion and what Graham said is that when you're managing things that are directly out of your own control which is which is what real leadership is all about it's very tricky but I'll tell you what it is the most satisfying and enjoyable part of leadership by a mile and I love it
0: it frustrates me I sometimes do it you know really
2: badly but that's the stuff that really,
0: really, really brings my bloods question. Yeah, excellent. Okay, and of course, obviously, we've seen the uh, the leadership contest as it's going on at the present moment. in time for the Conservative Party. We won't go down that particular route because oh, uh, we, we, <laughs> we, we, well, we we may come back to that and the and the, uh, and, and, the uh, and, and the point around what what makes a good leader when when you're the Prime Minister or not, as the case may be. But yeah. you, you mentioned something there around around skills, Clive, and. and <laughs> Again, all, all three of us—we've seen it, haven't we? Were by you do surveys of business and, and what they need from skills, and leadership and management is, is becoming—you know—one of those that comes out, you know, quite near the top all the time. Is there a problem with that? Because surely people have to have a certain element of leadership already in there. Is it something you can actually learn? It's like management—you know—how how easy is it to learn those things? is, is there a real problem? We hear it a lot from businesses, but is there a real problem
2: you know, it's with just, those
0: la- lack of skills? It's a really interesting question. I'm interested on in Graham's
2: take on this as well, because I, again, i draw, I go back, you back know, to that um, analogy with the uh, current economic circumstances and the constant narrative. You know, We, have, you know our productivity in this country has systematically fallen since the financial crash of 2000, 2007, 2008. And the, the concept concentration is we've got to teach our managers to manage, you know. And then you say, well, what exactly do you think you mean by that, and, you know? And what does it take to manage effectively in difficult environments? I mean, and most and a lot of managers. Imagine the current circumstances, you know, war in the Ukraine, global supply crisis, still post-pandemic, all those, you know, they've never experienced that in their working lives. So the idea that you somehow just kind of gather these skills as you go, of course, is wrong. And you do have to actually systematically look look to yourself and say, where, where do I think I need to develop those skills? But it's not just simply a narrative of a government team and say, oh, you know, our managers aren't as good as the managers in Germany for example, I think that's absolute absolute nonsense. It's about being open-minded. It's about accepting that you you can't, you know, you're never gonna control all the circumstances out there and, you know, spend most of your time influencing what you can influence, but also learn to live with uncertainty. Most human beings like the notion of certainty, don't they? Whether you're leading, whether you're managing or you're working as well, we like to think there's a degree of certainty. In our lives in the working life. Sadly, that's no longer the case. And setting the environment where that can still be positive and enjoyable is probably one of the most important
0: skills now. Yeah, that's a really good point. Greg.
1: When, when it comes to management as a skill set, you absolutely can learn it. You can learn it on the job, you can go on training courses, and people can give you tips and techniques, and, and your experience will grow and it's it's a definitely a skill that you can professionally develop leadership does at some point require a little spark it requires a degree of creativity imagination desire hunger that you're not going to get out of a textbook and a degree of charisma and all that other stuff however you can learn how the importance of leadership is in that blend of leadership and management So you can definitely realize it's important. And if you're not the best person to do that in your team, you can perhaps seek others to blend the team to be what it should be. I was really interested in what you said, Clive, about productivity, because you're right, we're in this huge transition now of labor shortage and what it means. But I've I've been a a non-exec director for a Scandinavian business based in the UK for nearly 20 years now. And they've always had an entirely different view to the way in which they invest in their manufacturing business. But first of all, if they can get rid of someone in a business by investing in a machine, they will. And they don't look at it in terms of payback. They look in terms of, can I de-skill this thing? And they take a very long-term view of that. The second thing is they pay people disproportionately well. So they build that skill and they keep it. So they minimize the number of people that they require in their business, but they upskill them and give them a reason to be there and be part of something, which has always been unusual compared to what I've seen elsewhere in the UK manufacturing market, particularly in this one, this instance is in the food industry. And the other aspect to that is when I compare A number of the reasons why uk-based businesses wouldn't do that they they say i need to stay flexible if i make fixed capital investment i could be writing it off if my market changes and so on and and the people from the scandinavian business just that never enters their head if we're doing the right thing making the right product as efficiently as possible the rest will sort itself out and it's a really interesting parallel in the sense of they always thought like this we're, we're now probably going to spend another decade playing catch-up trying to find solutions to job shortages, which basically are going to, in many industries, in many sectors, are going to boil down to fixed asset investment.
2: And if, if you look at that um, labour market availability, post the uh, financial crisis 2008, you know, what was that fueled by? It was fueled by availability of migrant labour. It was fueled by people staying longer in the workplace. And it was fueled by getting more women into the workforce as well. So you have a huge supply of labor. And, and that was the, the thing, Graham, you know, the, the, and, and that was driven. That was, again, driven also by government policy and government saying, take advantage of this. And, you know, the investment incentives, though, didn't trump the availability of, che- of cheap, cheaper, lower productivity labor. And that has a huge scarring effect on that. And again, the other, I mean, we get into a really interesting conversation. That company that you're talking about will be privately owned. It won't be a listed company. It will have long-term horizons and that you perfectly describe the middle stand in Germany, haven't you? You know, where you get that strong base of private companies, they knock at them. They can be very large, but they don't go public and they'll have absolutely long-term horizons and investment horizons. And again, and one final comment I make on that, you know, the super investment the, uh, deduction that the government introduced at 130%, it was only available for capital equipment, wasn't it? plant capital equipment, and yet a massive amount of our economy is service now in this country, where, you know, 46% of our exports are service. So why don't we incentivize that? And that is where you might see more investment, actually, in human beings as well, in service-based economies. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and that's, uh, that's leading us on to a little bit around, you mentioned there's some real changes in, in markets and the economic challenges. We mentioned it already uh, at the start of this, where we are in a time period of, of you know, one thing after, another. It? it feels like, you know, another week, another issue that, that comes out of the blue and really, you know, hits people for six. we We're Obviously, you've mentioned it already, I think, Clive, you know, facing volatile economic and labour market challenges the likes of you which know, few people have ever been through before. Um, And we've also got, you know, post-pandemic, this huge change in in working practices as well. You know, obviously at the Chamber, we've gone on to a permanent four-day week, haven't we, And, and things like that. So you've got all these things milling around there. If you're a manager, leader, both, how can you cope with some of these things that you're just getting constantly thrown at and thinking, right, okay... just got to look that a little bit in front now this is what this is going to look like because there's no rule book for what we're living through at the present moment in time how much of this is is sort of pulling from experience and how much of it is foresight yeah i mean a lot of the
2: job of the uh, of the leaders and the managers of the managers and where management fuses with leadership is to is to help people you know um, filter out the white noise
1: and of course, in smaller
2: business, you haven't got large teams around you. You often, you know, you're often self-sufficient senior levels of that way, to work out how the hell you do that yourself. And how do I concentrate on what's important? How, how do I make that decision when I'm being told that's what it's like to be inflation's you know gonna be like this for a long time, this supply uh, situation, global supply chain situation is going get- to so I'm not gonna make that capital investment, even though as Graham you know give you a perfect good example. That's probably exactly in many ways the right time to do it because you'll reap the longer term rewards in that in those things. So I think it is difficult, I think the biggest one, Chris, the, the one that gets people, and I'm you know, talking about the most, get us to talk about the most, of course, is the, you know, um, this horrible phrase that we must bow immediately, the new normal. You know, management was learned to manage the new normal. And if you say that, you've actually got it wrong in the first place because the whole point is there is no new normal. There has been a profound change in working practices. But of course, where does that settle? And of course the truth is, it settles in totally different ways, in different places and in different organizations. And that agility and fluidity of thought is very difficult. And you're reconciling, you know, I want to get the ticket to get the labor I need, I'm going to be as flexibly minded as possible without undermining the uh, consistency within the organization. It'll be interesting what going to say about this because it, it, it's what I, I, I think
1: the, the situation is extreme on a number of levels. Whether it's inflation, whether it's labour shortage, supply chain, political base, what, what, whatever word you want to use, there's a lot going on that we don't know how it's all going to pan out. But for your particular business, if you're a leader in a, in a business, it's affecting you. All those factors are affecting you in very specific, very particular, very personal ways that you're not being tarred with a general brush if you have stuff made in china and you can't get it that's your problem if you've got problems with input inflation and you can't move the selling price that's your problem and so i think the first point is don't assume that everybody's got all of these problems all at the same time because i don't i don't think they do i think they had ones that hit them right between the eyes and they need to deal with them and and that is very personal, very particular. And within that, it's very often important to keep coming back to what we're trying to do here. Who are our customers? What we're trying to provide, what's the satisfaction? How are they feeling? What do they now need? Am I adapting to what is now the real world? And if you just take some of the silly examples from the pandemic, hospitality closed, but there were many, many restaurant businesses that pivoted to home delivery successfully. Now that's never their original business. They would never have thought of doing it that way, but they've done it. And from now on, that will always be part of their business, I guess. And you can think of a series of examples where the pandemic forced upon management and leaders to find a, a solution to that particular individual problem. So that's the first thing I'd say. Also, I'd also like to think that most business owners, most business leaders, have a degree of commitment that they'll find an answer. Creativity, determination, resolution, they'll find an answer. And I suppose my final point is is one of inflation. I happen to be of a certain age, and I can remember when inflation was fairly routine, and we all had an annual inflationary pay rise, and there was always an annual selling price increase. And we've had, at least a decade or more of that not being the norm and I think a number of the younger leaders in business now have been thoroughly thrown by the need to deal with price inflation whether it's from wages whether it's from um, material input prices or other service input prices and they've not known how to react to that and I think that has been a very severe challenge And yet I can look around and see massive successes where people have either managed to dodge the bullet, that they've not had, they've managed ways of avoiding that increased cost, or they have successfully managed to re-engineer their pricing. I don't just mean put the price up, but re-engineer their pricing so their customers remain satisfied and they maintain profitability. So it, it is about understanding your particular problem as it's hitting you and your customer right here right now
0: and that's and that's a really good example i think There, if where the difference in management and leadership comes because you mentioned there graham about the pandemic and people saying well actually we'll got to we we'll have got to a delivery model for our restaurant that takes a bit of leadership doesn't it and then the management bit of that is right well how do we actually move this forward now and this becomes a core part of the business and it's a little bit like you know you may think reacting to an inflation rate that's not really leadership, but you've got to make that decision, haven't you? You've got to identify that opportunity and say, that's how we're going to do it. And then bring bring everyone. Along yeah, there's with there's,
1: there's an element to this, Chris. Any any form of, of significant change or variability in a business produces for the leaders potential risk. And it can be on a low scale or a big scale. And anything you do that isn't typical. Will come with a, a risk factor attached to it. So shoving your prices up might sound like a great idea, but you might not be selling very much thereafter. You know, going back to the pivot from being a restaurant to being a, a, essentially a dark kitchen with a home delivery system, that will have cost money, which might not have worked, and so not, it wouldn't have suited everybody. And in every every cafe and restaurant, wouldn't have been able to make that work, and so actually knowing that you're going to do this, being convinced that you can make it work and then understanding and managing the risk that sits around it is part of that leadership management balance in an uncertain time. I think mean, the
2: question then, Graham, is because what you say now is correct, but often for the smaller business with less resources or leaders that manage the life and slightly isolated, making those changes is extremely difficult, isn't it? And it's and it's it's helping, but I think half the battle in this is to um, not behave yourself in the way that you're hardwired into behaving, because you've got to do that level of, of adaptation. And my last comment and what you said, I was surprised you used the word pivot twice, which is what our politicians use. <laughs> and I would like to ban
1: pivot is now banned.
0: I'm going to say don't, don't say ecosystem. Uh, anyway, I'm, just, I'm going to uh, I'm going to just just move on to a, 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 a quite a serious uh, element now of uh, of, of managing uh, managing people, and we're going to just start to look at issues around stress. And, and Graham, you, you you come up with this phrase which, which I particularly like around making misery optional, and and stress and, and is it you know is it up to the manager to, to be aware of that and, and work it out is it up to the employee is it a combination of the two but uh, stress is an inescapable fact of life for, for many isn't it and obviously I mean managers can obviously be stressed but obviously you've got employees as well that you want to want to look at as well what what role and again what is the the primary point of con of of, of ownership I suppose really of where you know, how, how do you manage stress out, out of the workforce? Is it a management responsibility? Is it a, a combination of, of management and employee? Yes. Excellent.
1: <laughs> I think there's, a, there's an interesting backdrop to this. Um, I think we now understand as a, as a society that mental fitness is as important as physical fitness in being able to perform at work as well as in your private life and i think the ability to promote mental fitness and conversations about mental fitness in the workplace have moved on enormously clearly the pandemic accelerated that but it was it was happening before that a bit like inflation i go back far enough to remember when stress was something you never admitted to because it was very career negative if you couldn't cope with stress you know, you, you can't stand the heat get out of the kitchen and all those kinds of very helpful remarks and I think that the the reality is that the conversation is now open. People are able to say, I'm not coping or I've got a problem with this aspect. and, And it's right and proper that the discussion now takes place. And the responsibility for fixing it is primarily with the individual, obviously, but their employer has a massive impact on that. The way they behave, the way they treat them, the environment they create. All of that is totally and directly relevant to the pressures that the person is experiencing. Now, clearly, the way they respond to those pressures and pressures outside of work, which can be equally difficult and equally stress-inducing, are what will then end up with where they're able to cope with any sense of overwhelm or any sense of inability to cope or lack of confidence, call it what you will, that builds up and builds up and builds up. And so it's definitely a joint responsibility to ask your initial question. The primary responsibility, I believe, sits with the individual to say, I've got a problem, seek help from wherever that is, their manager, their uh, medical advisors, whoever, and then work their best way forward. And so I'm very pleased that we've moved into this space where it's Absolutely open and ready for people to talk and employers are beginning to accept it's a reality of life, and if they want to get the best out of their people, they need to come to the party.
2: Clive? I think, um, I mean, I'd I'd agree with that again, I think we have to contextualise it, there's still lots of organisations, big, small, multiple sectors, public sector, private sector, voluntary sector, where, you know, stress inducing behaviour is still very much alive and well, you know, let's not delude ourselves and it's not there. Uh, but, you know, if, if, the, and we must be careful not to institutionalise this discussion, but I think it, it, it's been positive and we've got to make sure that, again, management's got to be very certain here. Sometimes management really worries about, you know, having a, a conversation around stress and mental health. With people who work with them, and you've got to be, learn to become really quite relaxed about that discussion as well, and know when to bring in professional help if that's relevant and if that's necessary. And that's the danger that you get put in the box and seen as too big a thing. I mean, I, you know, my own view at the start of the pandemic, we moved, uh, it, as, as we know, Chris, to a four-day working week um, for the staff because we we thought. That, that was going to reflect what people wanted in the workplace going forward, and what those early lessons that were being learned, and all that, is 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 about a feeling of trying to satisfy the, the best interest and reconciling the best interest of the staff and the employee. And that you know, let's be honest, that's not always easy. But that's the discussion we're having. I think Graham's got a really good story to tell on this stuff because you know he was. Uh, he, you know, I've been on this for a number of years, he's a very you know, clear-minded, clear-thinker, you know, very action-orientated and he got involved in some really interesting work and became deeply aware of, of mental health issues and that actually had quite a profound impact on me in some ways as well, it's because it one that I wasn't used to working with, having a very different view to how it goes about thinking and doing things that's
1: the sort of, you know, role models that are important. Yeah, in in 2019, I got exposed to the work of a a guy called Shazad Shamin, who's a Stanford lecturer based in California and a, a psychologist. And he's pulled together, learning that many of us have seen before, but we've only ever seen piecemeal. And he's pulled it together as to a single operating system. And he's pulled it together and he's very cleverly put it on an app on a phone. And so it can show you very, the work shows you very quickly that the biggest influencer of stress on somebody is yourself. The way you respond to life's challenges dictates largely the outcome. And so if that is the case, you can choose your response. You can choose what the outcome is going to be. And one of the best ridiculous examples is is road rage, isn't it? You know, you're driving along nicely on your way to the office and someone cuts you up and what you do next drives the rest of your day, really. So you flick a finger, you overtake them, you give them a dose of their own. Well, that's one outcome. Or you just turn the radio up, sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the drive. And, And really, If you think about life challenges in that way, if you can teach yourself to understand that you're putting yourself under stress, if you teach yourself to recognize all these negative thoughts going on in your head are coming from you and nobody else, then you can say, no, quiet down. I'm not going to, I'm not listening to that. I'm going to see what's happening here through a lens of reality and practicality, and I'm going to choose my own response. And a lot of this is all to do with neuroscience, this is all to do with neural pathways that we've built up over decades of life, and they become our standard responses. And in many ways they're from survival, that's what's kept us alive and got us through life so far, but they've got just a tad overgrown and a bit overworn and we need to interrupt them and rebuild some new neural pathways to enable us to react differently to life's changes. And so this this work is called Positive Intelligence. It's work, as I say, from Shazad Shamin. and it combines things like meditation, mindfulness, all of the neurosciences and so on and so on and so on into a, a very simple thing to understand, but quite a difficult thing to do because you, essentially you're building new habits. And that takes about six weeks, as everybody knows, to to build new neural pathways. So 2019, and and we've rolled it out ourselves throughout our client base, and it's been immensely successful. So it's not about me saying, I think it's very good, I think it works. I know it does. But it doesn't mean that life isn't a challenge. It doesn't mean there aren't things you'd rather didn't happen. And it doesn't mean you're entirely controlled of your life, because you're not. And there's no point living in some kind of delusional world. But it does bring you back to the point I was making earlier, which is ultimately the responsibility for managing stress, the primary responsibility for managing stress, must sit with the individual. Because they're the only person who knows the whole picture of what is creating that damage to them. And the employer's only ever going to know it from one angle. And that may well not be the complete picture. Yeah, I think that's
2: true. I mean, I'll try and give that an illustration in the day-to-day, Because yeah. when we associate management, you know, words associate power, control, planning, grinding up the goals, that sort of thing, what you tend to get is quite transactional relationships, if you're not careful. They might, you might say, no, we're not friends at work, but actually you're behaving in a transactional way. <laughs> and, a huge amount of people in that situation, when they say that someone doesn't do what they ask or is unable to effectively do what they ask, they see it as an act of resistance. They absolutely say that, like, you're resisting what my will, what I want to do. And I absolutely guarantee anyone that listens to this, that 90% of that is down to, they actually don't understand fully what you want them to do in the first place. And more, or more importantly, they don't feel confident to execute that either. And that's deeply linked up with what what Grant's saying about this, you know, changing the way you look at those things and having the confidence. And remember, you know, that, an empowered style of management that has more of these discussions. Well, okay, so you don't, you know, you don't think you can do that. Let's look at other alternatives. That leaves a lot of self-confidence. And, you know, the managers and and the leaders have got to find the self-confidence to do that as well. There's,
1: There's no doubt the way managers approach challenges from their staff impacts the outcomes they're going to get. Yeah. The they are, the more understanding they are, the more empathetic they are, the more likely, the better outcome. And, and we've all worked with managers that are just dictatorial. We've all worked with managers that are all pace setters and they've got pretty much one management style fits all, you know, my way or the highway, and all, all the things that we've, we've heard many times. And that doesn't make them effective in the end. In the end, it makes them less effective. But let's not lose sight of the fact that sometimes people are incompetent. Sometimes people are lazy. Sometimes people lose sight of what they're supposed to be doing. Sometimes they're not good time managers of their own time. And sometimes there are things that, that the person's responsible for too. And so it's not all on the manager necessarily. But if you've got an empathetic manager, you've got someone who can open up to why is that a problem for you? You're halfway to finding the solution, which is...
2: The, got, the manager has got to reckon, or the, the person in that position of authority has got to recognize what's going on there and understand that and that still doesn't happen in a lot of instances
1: no. now there are cultures and i see them i work in them i see cultures <laughs> where i'm the boss i don't pay you to think you, know, you have to do what i say and however ridiculous that might sound in Twenty twenty two, unfortunately, is true. Now, yep. it's a yeah, the disappointment, but I think it's yeah, you know, as a generalisation, but it's yep. not. The I agree with you,
2: Greg. And, You know, just and people just just stay clear of things. You know, like you're all empowered here, but when you really mean you're empowered to do what I say, you know, I mean, uh, because people you know, people see through all that sort of crap. Don't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, you, you know when you're empowered, don't you? You don't need to be told.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. On the desk. I don't quite grasp
2: the notion of this, <laughs> have
0: I? That's excellent, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Uh, it comes to the uh, end of the first part of, uh, of, of this uh, this large episode on uh, on leadership and management. And we've covered a, a heck of a lot of ground in the last 30 minutes or so, which I thought we would do, and, and some real insights as well, and some very great practical examples as well. Uh, which is uh, which is absolutely superb. So, just going to round off uh, part one here, uh, Graham, Clive. Thank you very much. In Thanks. part, in part two, we're going to be uh, covering a whole range of uh, of other things as well. Going to be looking at coaching and diversity as well. We may get back into this mental fitness uh, bit as well, which I think is uh, is quite important. And again, one of those challenges we're hearing from managers and leaders more and more that they need some help with. So we may just touch uh, touch back on this as well, but uh, it's the end of part one. Graham, Clive, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be back uh, in, in part two.
1: Thanks,
2: Chris. Bye.